Hi, and welcome to Walk Talk, a podcast courtesy of the Wound, Ostomy, and Continence Nurses Society. Walk Talk is your opportunity to learn more about advocacy, education, and research that support the practice and delivery of expert healthcare to individuals with wound, ostomy, and continence care needs. Please visit wocn.org slash podcast to subscribe and make sure you never miss an episode. Now, here's your host, Jody Scardillo. Welcome to this week's edition of Walk Talk. This week, I'm delighted to be sitting down with Drs. Martina Mueller and Teresa Kelichai from the Medical University of South Carolina College of Nursing. Dr. Kelichai also is the deputy editor of the Journal of Woundostomy and Continence Nursing. Today, we're going to be discussing some of the changes that are coming to the journal and other journals regarding the reporting out of research. All right. Thanks for joining me, ladies. I'm really excited to be talking with you today about what's going on with the changes as far as reporting research in our journal. Dr. Mueller, I know you teach statistics and are on the faculty at MUSC in Charleston. What does your usual work day look like? Well, first, thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to be here on this talk. We're happy to have you. We look very, very different from day to day and hour to hour. I do very different things. For example, even though I don't formally teach currently, I I do mentor to junior faculty in teaching statistics. So I meet with them on an ongoing basis. I might meet with students who are in their, either write their proposals for their dissertation projects or they're in their dissertation project phase and are actively working on their analysis and need help. So I might meet with them typically over phone or internet now anyway with COVID-19. I meet with my faculty. Some of them I, I work with, or depending on what their needs are, I work with them on writing proposals. And I like to start when they work on their aims and help them develop their proposals in terms of the aims and and what they're actually trying to do and and which direction they're going. And then I provide sample size and analysis section as needed. It might be that there is a study already ongoing, like I have with Teresa a couple currently, And we meet with a study team and discuss issues that are important for the study that's currently ongoing that might be important for statistical analysis later on. Or then when the study is done, when it's finished, then I might do analysis or I supervise a statistical programmer and we discuss issues related to the analysis we, we develop reports, we help with the manuscripts, the results sections, and the method sections. We help interpretation. We write reports for DSMB meetings if necessary. All of that can can be part of my current day. Wow, it sounds full for sure. It can be, yes. But it, it all is fun. And because I'm doing so many different things, it never gets boring. 
Uh So you have a lot of different types of projects you're involved with at a time, it sounds like. I am, yes, and and very varied projects. For example, I work with one of my former students. She is interested in breastfeeding. I work with Teresa on wounds, and I work with other people on other things. For example, one group of psychiatrists I work with an Alzheimer's patients. So it's it spans the entire life and the entire body. Yeah. Yeah. The lifespan and the whole body span. Yeah. Yeah. And what drew you to become a statistician? That's a good question. Yeah. I I always say I kind of fell into statistics by accident. I started out in nursing way back when in Germany. You can probably hear that I've, I'm not native to this country. I worked in nursing in Germany and in Switzerland for a couple of or a number of years, primarily as OR nurse, which I found fascinating. But then I decided to, to go back to school because I was intrigued by computers. And I found a program at that time, a new program in medical informatics. And at the end of that program, I came to the States as a Fulbright scholar. Now that stay initially has, was planned for only nine months and it, I was a non-degree student, but I was able with Fulbright's help to extend that and get into the master's program and get my master's. And the program I had joined was partially focused on system science, so that matched with my medical informatics very well. But it had two more parts to it, and one was epidemiology, and the other one was biostatistics. And that program required you to take core courses in all the parts. And then I had to do some hands-on activities with the statistics part, and I became involved in research through that, and then I was drawn to how to use statistical methods to make data speak and tell you tell you their their story essentially and that pushed me into getting my PhD in biostatistics. And then eventually I became faculty at MUSC and faculty at the College of Nursing. And that brought me full circle and to, to a job that I really enjoy doing with my peers and my students. So you were into informatics before that was really a thing, it sounds like. You were way ahead of yourself, of the curve with that. Right. You know, at that time, anything you wanted done where someone had to use a computer, they often would say, oh, well, the computer can't do that. And I wanted to know, is it the computer or is it the person? And very often it is the person. I mean, we see that with technology currently, a lot of us have tools where we know very little about all the capabilities those tools have. And we don't use a lot of what we have available to us, I think, because we don't know. Right. Sometimes I find a functionality on my phone where I say, oh, wow, if I had known that, (laughs) 
<laughs> months ago, my life would have been easier, but there's so much to it. So it's very often the person, including me. <laughs> Unless you have a teenager in your house, then you're a little bit more up on what the technology can do, I think. Yeah, that helps a lot. <laughs> For sure. Will you tell us about your work with Dr. Kelichai? I know that you have worked on a lot of projects together, specifically related to wound ostomy incontinence care. So I'd love to hear a little bit about the work you're all doing. Well, from, from my perspective, for one, we're, we've worked together now for about 13 or 14 years, and that in different roles. That includes teaching and mentoring students and faculty specifically in, in writing grants. We both love that. And we work really well together because we, we come from very different angles and bring very different skills. In terms of Teresa's area, that was totally new to me when I first started exploring and, or when we first started exploring cryotherapy together. I mean, Teresa has been in that field. I don't know how many years was that, Teresa, before you, before I joined you? I hate to say it, 20 plus. <laughs> so considerable experience <laughs> with wounds. And for me, it was totally new. I've learned a whole lot in doing these studies. We started with the feasibility study for her cryotherapy and then all the way to the RO1 and diff looked at different angles for wounds with all kinds of different interventions and very interesting ways of looking at the data, at wounds and trying to tease out how to get them to heal better. In terms of working together on proposals, we both enjoy the process of, of developing proposals, starting with very premature ideas and make those into full-fledged pro proposals. And that may be with other faculty or it may be in, in Teresa's own field. Martina, I have to say it has been a wonderful pleasure. I've learned a lot too. I want to point out that I was a brand new, quote, PhD, but before even thinking outside of that PhD hat, I was a clinical nurse. I came from a clinical practice background. And while I thought I knew how I wanted to say what I wanted to study, it wasn't until I met Martina, quote, the statistician, that opened up many other avenues and many doors I wasn't asking the right questions, and I certainly wasn't going about trying to do the analysis or how to collect the data. I know I'm using a lot of research terms, but I came to appreciate Martina not for only for her statistical knowledge, but she helped me better understand what I wanted to do, how to articulate it, and then helped me design it in the best possible way so that I wasn't getting information that I really didn't need. I wasn't going down the wrong pathway. So my advice is for those, our members or others who have an idea, get yourself a statistician. I know some hospitals don't have them, but certainly there's colleges of nursing around 
that you can go to and talk to somebody about what you want to do before you launch into a project because it's not only what we want to do but more importantly it's how we're going to do it so that we answer our questions in the right way so i appreciate martina in for more than just the sort of the the stats piece she's also a great designer and with her nursing background she really understands what it means for patient care and at the end of the day that's what we're in this about so between the two of you then you are able to really design a study that's done right from the get-go so that the you get the type of results that you want to apply to practice yes right and you have you have to collect the right data to answer the question that you're really interested in and sometimes we don't really connect what we're collecting well with what we really are asking yeah do you find that novice researchers do that i know in my very limited research experience people have said to me you if you can ask that but then you're not going to get the result that you're looking for and it sounds like you really start right at the beginning with people to get that right or correct in the first place right because the aims are the the most important thing in your in your proposal if if your aims are not written right then the methods that you're using to collect your data and then analyze them won't really do do your your question justice because they're not what you really want to do and if they're not what you want to do, then anything that follows is not what you need. So you have to put a lot of time into aim, writing aims, and even experienced people spend a lot of time in writing and rewriting aims and getting feedback on it to be able to formulate them in the way that they lead them where they really want to go. And so I understand that there are some changes coming into how statistics, or particularly p-values, are reported out in research and as well as publication. So can you update us on what is going on as far as that is all concerned? Yeah, there are, there are relatively important changes coming in, in terms of specifically p-values. And they are absolutely needed. I mean, if you've been in research for a little bit, you have guaranteed you've been in the situation where you've done your study and the results that you're getting are absolutely not what you expected. So you have what is called a null result, a null finding where you, you can't reject your null hypothesis based on the p-value. And very often, journals would then not accept your manuscript when you're reporting null findings. Now, the problem with that is, imagine you have an intervention and, it's, and you find that that is good or it, it's working. It, and you have a couple of studies where you do the same or a similar intervention and it comes out that these studies, it comes out, it's working. So you assume that is a good intervention, 
But what you don't know is that there were just as many studies where it didn't work that had null findings. So because you don't know that there are just as many or maybe even more studies that were not reported because journals didn't accept the reports, you can't really judge the value of this intervention because you would look at it differently if it had only studies that were positive versus a bunch of studies that were also negative, right? So that's one problem. The other problem comes in if you have two studies, let's say one has a, has a, a positive finding so that there is a p-value that is statistically significant and we'll come back to that in a moment. And the other is that the other study has one that is not. So it seems like they're opposite in findings, but if the effect size, so the, the, what you found in your results the magnitude is essentially the same. Let's say you do a study on wound healing and the time it takes to heal with one, one intervention in, in one study is almost the same as in the other study. But in one study, it's coming out as significant and the other study, it's coming out as not significant. That can't be. It, but it, it happens just that the p-value is a function of sample size. So if the one study has a large sample size, then the same effect size, the same wound healing time in this case, comes out as important versus in, in statistically important and significant in one study with a large sample size versus in the study with a small sample size. The same, almost exactly the same finding would then be not significant. So using just simply the p-value as the only indicator of relevance, that's what we're trying to move away from. There is a group of statisticians, they published an entire issue last year in the Journal of the American Statistician about exactly that problem. Um, that is an open access issue. It has 44 manuscripts in it that look at this from all different angles, and several of those are not in statistical lingo. So if you want to know more about that in more detail, that would be a worthwhile issue to look at and pull out a couple of those partially also very short articles that discuss that. We can provide the link later on. It's, a, it's written from Wasserstein, Sherm, and Lazar, moving to a word beyond P less than 0.05. Okay. You know what? I'll add that at the end of our talk, too. So if our listeners want to find that, that reference, they would be able to do that. Would you just review for us the definitions of p-value and statistical significance in case some of our listeners haven't had a research course in a long time or maybe need a refresher as to exactly what both of those are? Sure, and very often it's actually not used according to that definition, which is also a problem. 
So the definition is the p-value is the probability of finding an observed or a more extreme result than the observed under the assumption that the null hypothesis about a study question is true. So what does that even mean? It's, it's quite a mouthful. So let's say we did a study on, on wounds and we have a difference in wound healing and there's a p-value of 0.03. So if we follow this definition for the p-value, then we would assume that our null hypothesis is true. And let's say that we have two different interventions for it. One might be a powder and one might be an ointment that we're trying on, on those wounds to make them heal faster. And our, hypothesis, our null hypothesis is that the time it takes to heal with the powder is not any different than the time it takes to heal with the ointment. So we assume that there is no difference between the groups. In that case, the probability of finding a difference in times between healing of the magnitude that we would have observed, that would be the 0.03 that I mentioned earlier. So in this case, a very small probability. So it would be very unlikely of finding something as small just by chance. Typically, the threshold where we decide whether we want to reject a null hypothesis and say the null hypothesis is false, that is set to 0.05. And that threshold, that is called the significance level. And when we have that, we have something that is smaller than this significance level, then we call that p-value or the finding statistically significant. There is an, an interpretation that might also help with what, what this threshold means. So when you have a threshold or this significance level of 0.05, then you have a chance, a 5% chance of being wrong with saying the null hypothesis is wrong. So in other words, a 1 in 20 chance of rejecting the null hypothesis as wrong when really it's a true null hypothesis, so there is no difference. That makes perfect sense. I don't know if I've ever understood that so well before. So tell me a little bit about the changes that are going on with research studies that will be going into our journal. So the biggest change that for most researchers will be to stop using the p-value in a, in a dichotomous fashion. So that includes to report p-values in, in a manuscript as only less than 0.05 or then ns for not significant or that you use asterisks to indicate that there are different levels of significance. Sometimes they're used, has, have been used 
with one for 0.05, two asterisks for 0.01, and three for 0.001. Instead, any p-value should actually be reported as the value that you have obtained, regardless of whether that is above this threshold that we have used in the past or not. And then in addition to those actual p-values, you should report the size of the effect that you're seeing in your study. So if we go back to that example of, of wound healing, if you measured the time to heal in two groups and then you calculate the difference in that time to heal, then that difference is your effect. And the magnitude of that difference, that is your, what we call an effect size. And so that should be reported. And it could be means, it could be proportions, a difference in proportions. If you, if you look at percent healing, for, for example, the, the proportion that heal with an intervention versus the ones that don't heal in different groups. So that would be a difference in proportion would be an effect size. A difference in means is an effect size. Or then you can use what we call standardized effect sizes like the Cohen's D that is relatively well known. And then in addition, so now you have the p-values that you're, you should report the actual ones, the effect size. And then in addition to those, you should report confidence intervals around your effect sizes. So if you report the mean difference, then you should include also a confidence interval around that mean difference. And then there is another step that you also should do that often has not been done well and that is you need to interpret what your effect sizes and what your confidence intervals mean clinically because the statistical significance has nothing to do with whether a finding has any relevance for clinical practice. It just means that you had a large enough sample size to see whether a certain difference is statistically significant, but not whether that has any clinical relevance. So any mean difference, any, any difference in proportions, any Cohen's D needs to be interpreted in light of whether that difference, that magnitude would, would push you to change your clinical practice. If one intervention makes a wound heal faster, the difference you're seeing, would that prompt you to change your clinical practice and, and use an ointment versus a powder or a powder versus an ointment or some wound covering? You've always done it one way, but now you see with this, there is a, magna, a difference. And would that difference make you change what you've always done? So that would be an important thing for me as the reader to look for moving forward if I was going to decide 
to change my practice or to use that study as the basis for something else, like another study. Right. And if, if that information is provided in a manuscript, it actually will make it much easier for the reader to, to get out what you need because it's already laid out that look here with this tool, with this intervention, the wound heals two days quicker in this group versus that group. Is two days important? It can be. It doesn't have to be. It depends on the circumstances and how expensive something is versus what you've always done and things like that. And that is what, what you need to discuss in your manuscript or what you, when as a reader, what you then have to look at when you read what the magnitudes of those effect sizes are. So would this mean that maybe a study would get published that had like null results or negative results that maybe wouldn't have been published before? Because from a clinical standpoint, I might want to know that before I went down that same road or how if I was going to design another study. Is that right or am I off base with that? Jody, no, I think that's you're right on target and we Martina and I did a study together and we studied symptoms and looked at symptoms in people who had leg ulcers that venous leg ulcers that healed and we were using a cooling patch. We wanted to know if it prevented ulcers from reoccurring. Well, In the one study we did, we found that the cooling patch didn't make a difference compared to a fake placebo cooling patch. But what we found is that there were clinically meaningful effects, which we described as benefits, to the population. And they said that it reduced their pain, their itch, their ache, and their throb. When we took the symptoms together using a scale and scored their symptoms as a whole, we didn't find any differences. But when we took each symptom by itself and looked at the clinically meaningful benefit, for example, pain, they went from a nine to a six on the scale. And itch, they went from an eight to a four. So statistically, that doesn't show that there was a difference, but to the patient, it was a meaningful difference because it improved the quality of their life in these four particular areas. We called it PAIT, P-A-I-T, pain, ache, itch, throb. They, They reported a clinically meaningful difference, benefit, and it was relevant to them. And we published that in... JWOCN back in two uh, back in 2018, I think it was issue 45 number four. But that's an example of how you can have a statistical outcome that was not significant. There wasn't a difference in those overall scores for these symptoms, and we reported that in a paper. But we went dug deeper and said, "Well, wait, we've got these." 11 items individually and four emerged as being important to the patients and believed, and that's not a statistical word, but they found that cooling improved those four areas compared to the placebo. So I'm not sure that's an exact 
a greatest example, but it, it puts it back into what is meaningful to the patient. As, as I said, you know, this is about patient outcomes and what's important to them. And so if I'm the clinician trying to decide to use that therapy or not, that's meaningful to me. Yes. So you would recommend for the patients that you're caring for in your clinic or wherever you're in your setting, if they were describing pain or this achiness or this itch or this throb, cooling that particular area benefited in a clinically meaningful way, this population who were using this little cooling patch. That's great. So we'll see more of that then when we start to read studies. I, I would expect that, yeah. The the one thing I want to caution is that we're not saying abandon the p-value. That's absolutely not what we're saying. We're just saying that do not use the p-value as the only measure of importance. If you have something that is clinically relevant, it still should be tested further and confirmed in other studies, it, it's not sufficient to have one study that says this symptom cluster is there and then you know it is there. Even if it's a statistically significant finding, you still should have confirmation in repeated studies, similar studies that, that show that yes, this is what we found in this first study. But the p-value should not be the single criterion to, to decide whether something is important or not. Okay. So that's the important point of all of this. Yes. Like. Yeah. Yes. So then this affects quantitative studies. This is, again, a review question. So for somebody who has maybe been out of school for a while, so this change affects quantitative versus qualitative studies. Is that right? Yes, I have very limited experience with qualitative data. I know there is, in the meantime, a group of researchers, they advocate for something similar to statistical tests for qualitative data. They also advocate for something similar in terms of sample size that is more formal than just just the saturation that is often used to determine how many people to use in a qualitative study, but it hasn't caught on yet widely as far as I can tell. For now, I would say that currently this affects quantitative analysis only. And are other journals or are most journals now publishing research this way? As everything, different journals have different rules, but JAMA published an article in August last year where they discussed whether they actually should ban p-values altogether. They haven't really gone that far yet. Currently, their guidelines say, and I quote this, avoid relying only on statistical hypothesis testing like using p-values because they fail to convey important quantitative information that is needed to draw appropriate conclusions. So this goes back to report the p-value, report the effect size and the confidence interval. And in terms of other 
journals, a group of us statisticians in nursing, nursing schools and colleges. There are 25 of us who submitted an editorial about this to 18 nursing research and education journals with our recommendations regarding this change. And several nursing journals have recently published that editorial. It's called Moving Nursing Beyond P less than 0.05. And several journals, nursing journals, have actually made changes to their guidelines already. You may have seen some of them in the meantime. I know it's Nursing Outlook, Nursing Research, Nursing and Research in Nursing and Health, and a few others. I don't recall all of them. So what does this mean now to an author that wants to submit in the future that maybe has submitted in the past? Mm, yeah, first, I would say definitely check the author guidelines of the, the journal that you're trying to publish in because several of them have already changed their guidelines. So make sure you look at those to know what they expect now. In terms of presenting your own results, I would say include the raw effect size. So that means that this, the means or the proportions, the correlations, or its regression coefficients, anything of the sizes of the effects that you're calculating or your statistician is calculating for you. That can include Cohen's D or similar ones as in standardized effect sizes and then definitely include the confidence intervals for your effect sizes and the actual p-values. And then in your discussion, then interpret and discuss those findings in terms of their context and their clinical relevance and not just focus on, on whether or not the p-value is above or below 0.05. And Jody, I, I just want to jump in here as the deputy editor of JWCN. We are moving as well in this direction, and papers that are being submitted now, we're asking authors to go back and review what the, how they presented their data and to add p-values, effect sizes, and confidence intervals. So we're on this, I don't want to say the bandwagon because it's the important wagon that we need to be on, but we are also following suit and we're very aware of the, the importance and relevance of these changes. So if I have a manuscript, Teresa, that I'm starting or in progress, what would I do? Like I'm a walk nurse, so I know I want to publish it in the journal Walk Nursing. What would I do like if I had already started a project and the manuscript? What would you suggest about that? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. I would get in touch with Dr. Gray or myself and ask. We can we can take a look. They'll always go to the editorial man or the yeah, the ED manager through Walters Kluwer. And then it's assigned through that system. But if you don't know up front, Dr. Gray and I are very eager to help folks on the front end so that the work can be done early and reviewed in a prompt, you know, a prompt amount of time than having to go back and 
relook at your data and produce this the, these newer you know the p values the effect size and the confidence intervals so reach out to us we 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 are eager to help in that way we talked to several uh, potential authors for manuscript writing last year at conference and we will have we're hoping to have something published soon about that and changing our author guidelines as well to follow suit okay so now I've learned that if I'm reading a study and I'm trying to decide how to use it in practice or use it as a as a reference for a project that I want to look at the p-value and the mean and the confidence interval. And then I also want to look at what the author is saying about clinical relevance of the results. What else is important for me to look at or consider as I look at manuscripts or journal articles in the future? Are those the big things or what else should I be paying more attention to than maybe I have in the past? I think this, these are the biggies. How are they describing the clinical meaning of, the, of their findings? That should always have been included, but it has not. And hopefully with this new push of going away from the p-value as the only judge whether something is important or not, hopefully that will prompt more discussion of how relevant this actually is for the patient, for the clinician, for changing clinical practice. One other thing to keep in mind is always taking a look at at the sample size and at the amount of missing data, because for one, if the sample size is relatively small, then your your evidence is not that strong. And the other thing is, if you're ignoring missing data in ter- in in terms of only analyzing the people who have complete data in your data set, then you're throwing out a lot of important information. And often we're throwing away the people who aren't doing well, which then severely may, may severely bias our findings and our results and interpretation. So that's important to look at also how how missing data were treated and taken into account in the analysis. Well, I didn't know that. Good point. So if I'm a walk nurse and I'm in a doctoral program and I'm starting a quantitative project, say on wound or ostomy care, and I'm sure I want to publish it in our journal once I'm finished with it, is there other advice that you would give me as I was starting along with this? Yeah. If you're really just starting out with with you're planning your study, then I would start at the very beginning at your aims. Make sure that they are what we call smart, which means that they are specific, that they're measurable, they can be achieved, that the aims are relevant, and they're timely. And look at what you've written in terms of your aims and your goals under these five foci and then define your hypotheses and your primary outcomes ahead of time definitely before you start collecting any data and and work with the statistician if you can get your hands on one to develop 
an analysis plan or or the methods that you want to use because very often when you look at it from that point like Teresa pointed out earlier there are a whole lot of questions coming up that then may prompt you to change your aims a, a bit and then where should an author reach out now to for our journal if they have questions during this transition that's probably a Teresa question yeah i i would recommend you reach out to Dr. Gray and myself and we can offer some statistical, we have some support, statistical support. If there's a particular question, we can, as I said, help on the front end so that the project progresses through the orderly steps that Martina pointed out. One thing I want to make sure, folks, and, and I, I don't know how it was, but I remember when I was in my stats classes, they were very intimidating because I had a hard time connecting the methods, the statistical approach back to what I wanted to know. And I know we can go to our books and we can look at different online URLs that you can look things up. But no, I, I don't want folks to be intimidated by the stats. And that sometimes I think keeps us from doing projects because we don't know how to go about figuring out whether we're, how do we design it, how do we write the question? Martina talks about the aims, and the aims are just a way of stating your research question or your PICO question. Sometimes I think that's what they're teaching in the DMP program. So, you know, there are ways in the society that we can help at the journal level. Certainly, Dr. Gray has a great command of stats. I, I always fall back on Martina, but I too know some of the basics that, and, and our members, not to suggest they don't know what they are doing, but most of us aren't doing hefty, deep dive statistical analyses. We're looking for differences, or we want to know if one approach is better than another. We want to know how well something's going to work on one unit versus another, or we want to change the way we are educating our colleagues or our nurses at the bedside to assess whether you have moisture-associated skin damage versus a stage one pressure injury. So a lot of what we're doing is 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 not complex or so complicated that it's unbearable to work statistically with someone like Martina. And, you know, stats folks are your friends. And I know a lot of hospitals do have them. And I I appreciate those those of us who work in smaller areas that don't have these resources. But if you're interested in a project, reach out to Dr. Gray and myself. We can help locate folks who can help you, the the walk nurse, design and come up with an approach to collect and analyze the data so that they have a good representation of what they did in their project and that the data were analyzed to reflect the questions or the aims that they had. Yeah. Do you sometimes, both of you, find that nurses do really nice QI projects that probably could be a really good study if they went the next step? Oh, yes. All the time. Yeah. I, I, I often wonder that, too. Like, if somebody just did that next step and, and had that set up as they developed the QI project, they would probably have a really nice study, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Yeah, a lot of real great projects come out of clinical routine where the clinicians who deal with issues every single day say, this this cannot be the end all. There has to be a different way of doing it. And that can be a QI project or that can be a full-blown, large, multi-center study of something. It often starts with the clinician who has an idea of saying, I, I, I think there is something more to this. And the the one advice I want to give clinicians is do not be afraid of asking questions of your statisticians. If, if you don't understand something, ask the question because you are the experts in the, in the clinical area that you're talking about. I'm not an expert in any of the clinical things that I work with. I rely heavily on people like Teresa and all my other clini- clinical experts because I can't interpret a lot of things that I see in my data without their help. So I rely on the clinical experts. So you might as well rely on your statistical experts. So it sounds like a great collaborative relationship. Right. Yes. Right. Yes. Neither of us can do it without the other. That is the truth. All right. Tell me what else is important that our listeners should take away from our our talk today? I can't really come up with anything different. I just wanted to mention one more time that we're not saying p-values are no longer important, that that is not our message. It's just that we don't want them to be the only thing to focus on when you make decisions. There has to be more to take into account like the effect sizes and and the the relevance to the clinical practice and for me representing the journal we would like to see we still want to see the p values but we want to know p equals not less than 0.05 or less than 0.0 whatever we want to see p equal whether they're statistically significant or not We definitely want to see effect sizes. And again, these are for research studies. And the confidence intervals are are so helpful when we're looking at an odds ratio. And I know we don't have time here to go into all the meanings of what what that all says about your findings. But confidence intervals are very important as well. So again, don't be afraid to reach out to a statistician. Don't be afraid to reach out to Dr. Gray and myself. We can help you or find help for you early on in the project. And if you are in the middle of a manuscript and you haven't looked at these exact p-values or whatever, you know, take your time, go back and, and review it. And we are asking, we are asking authors to provide that level of detail in our manuscripts going forward. And just to clarify one thing, Teresa mentioned that's for for research projects, but QI projects very often look at pre-post and then do a difference in pre-post means, for example, or a difference in pre-post proportions. So that is your effect size there. And then you, you report the confidence interval around those 
effect sizes. So it, it applies to QI projects just as much as to research projects, just that they're, the, the projects are slightly different, but the effect sizes, confidence intervals, and p-values to report that is that applies to both types of projects. Okay, great. Thank you both for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And I am going to be reading research articles in a new and better way from now on. <laughs> thank you, Jody. Great. Thanks again. And thank you for inviting me. Oh, our pleasure. Thank you for sharing your expertise with us. I think I want to come work with you too. <laughs> come on. We'd love to have you. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm going to repeat some of the references that Drs. Mueller and Kalachai were discussing in case you're interested. The first one is Wasserstein, Sherm, and Lazar, 2019, Moving to a World Beyond P Less Than 0.05 in the American Statisticians, Volume 73, Supplement 1, pages 1 through 19. The second one, uh, the editorial that Dr. Mueller was discussing, was by Hayat, H-A-Y-A-T et al., entitled Moving Nursing Beyond P Less Than 0.05 in the International Journal of Nursing Studies. Volume 95, pages A1 and A2. This editorial is in multiple other journals, including Nursing Outlook, if you are interested. And then lastly, the reference Dr. Kelichai was referring to was from the July-August edition of the Journal of Woundostomy and Continence Nursing, Volume 45, Issue 4, and that study was entitled Symptoms Associated with Chronic Venous Disease in Response to a Cooling Treatment Compared to a Placebo, a Randomized Controlled Trial by Kelichai, Dooley, Mueller, et al. And that was page 301 to 309. Thanks again for joining me on this week's edition of Walk Talk. Thank you for listening to this episode of Walk Talk. Please visit wocn.org slash podcast for additional details about this topic and the speakers. You can also get more information about subscribing to this podcast so you never miss an episode and to get the latest news and information from the WOCN Society. Again, that's wocn.org slash podcast. We look forward to having you join us for the next episode of Walk Talk.